It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Welcome back to the Kick to Kick podcast. Uh, we are currently covering the 1979 season. Charlie, welcome. Oh, it's good to be back into it. Halfway through the 79 season we are. Now, it's been a bit of a two-week break since we last uh, released yes. an episode. You've had COVID, we've had busy things, so apologies there. But Yeah, yeah, it's good on. to be back on. Back on. Um, and uh, after a great week of uh, footy in the, in the current time period. Yes, well, we're recording the, uh, the afternoon just before the Brisbane-Melbourne semi-final. Yes. So, big game that we're going to tonight. It's huge. Can't wait. Um, what a weekend of footy it was last weekend. Too. Oh, it was a cracker. Yeah. Um, some things we'll get to in this episode. War breaking out between Collingwood and Richmond. Mm. Fitzroy making a remarkable turnaround for their season. Um, we talk about the, there's a certain big win of theirs we'll get to as well. A Collingwood legend makes his debut. And a couple of South Australian superstars debut for the Kangaroos. We'll get stuck into those. I want to talk a little bit about some music. Oh, okay. A certain song that came up, came out. We did mention this in 1979. We? It was a little ditty by a man named Mike Brady called "Up There Kazali." Mm-hmm. Now we've talked about Kazali. We have. We've we've talked to the uh, the author of the Kazali book as well. Um, but just to give us a bit of backstory on the Kazali song, so it was kind of born out of Kerry Packer's World Series cricket in terms of when Kerry Packer turned that into more of a spectacle, they released a song that you might know called Come On Aussie, Come On. Yes. And that yep. was the jingle that was associated that, with the cricket. Was that when that came out? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so Channel 7 wanted something similar mm-hmm. for the footy. And so they kind of asked Mike Brady, like, you reckon you can write something? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll write something. Um, but at that stage of his life, I think he was 21 years old, he'd, he'd seen about 25 minutes of footy. Yep. Live. He had no real thing. Um, he'd gone to school, uh, he'd been to a Catholic school with some nuns who knew about it and had taught him about Kazali and he knew about the saying up there, Kazali, mm-hmm. and how that was a, a phrase used around the town yep. during the war. We, we talked about that before, yes. Charlie. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the rea- the, as we talked about in that thing, like the actual, the saying was still around, but no one really... The, the connection to the actual man had almost been lost by that A little stage. bit. I mean, yeah. we, do, we do have the Kazali Awards that happen yearly at this stage. Yes. Um, but so they were sitting around trying to work out, you know, what, what can we do? How can we... What's the jingle? What's the hook going to be? And Mike Brady said, oh, look, we need something like up there, Kazali. Like, we need a saying. And they're like, no, just use that. <laughs> so that's what happened. They used that saying. Um, it took about 25 minutes to write the lyrics and write the music. Um, and... He only changed two words from his original scribbles. Um, And he recorded it on a cassette and sent it off. And it was chosen as, yeah, on a cassette. And it was, uh, yeah. The rest is kind of history. So um, it was the two-man band, I believe, were the first one. Like it was Mike Brady and his other friend, Peter Sullivan, I think. Um, And they just did everything together. and the interesting thing is the key change in it. So he talks about, you know, we needed something like big songs of the day had key changes, like MacArthur Park had one. So like, oh, well, we should put one in this song as well. Yep. So they put one in there and that's what they did. So it starts in D on the verse and then jumps to F on the chorus. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and yeah, and the, and the rest we know is history. We roll him out once a year, really, to perform this song at grand finals. This one and uh, the one day in September, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And, uh, you know, he just, he tries to chuck in Kazali in every single song he writes. There's so, like, you look at all these songs he's written since, and there's a lot that kind of still have that element of Kazali in there. Yeah. Even one day in September. Yeah. yeah. Mentions it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. the Swans, when they moved to Sydney, one of their theme songs they used was Up There for Sydney. Up There for Sydney, that's right. Mm. We did, did talk about that in our little special, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. So he per- first performed that song at the grand final in 1979, which we'll talk about later about that entertainment. But, Fantastic. But yeah, um, so can you go through the... the would absolutely have to. The teams we've already spoken about yes. last time, uh, we had the Wooden Spooners in 79 Banks and Kilda. Uh, moving up the ladder, 11th we had Melbourne, 10th South... Ninth, Footscray, eighth, Richmond, seventh, Hawthorne, and sixth, just missing out, Geelong. Which takes us to our first finalist uh, in fifth spot, the same old Essendon. Mm. With 12 wins and nine losses, a percentage of 105.1. Keeping things pretty steady steady down at the Dons with Captain Ken Fletcher and Coach Barry Davis. Yes. Some debutantes and a big debutante um, include Barry Day and Alan Reid over from WA. We got Craig Barnaby, uh, Darren Daisy Williams. Crackers Keenan came over from North, but the biggest debutante is Neil Danaher. Oh, yes. What a man. We both. Love, Neil. I mean, yes, how can you not? Yeah. But as a D's and an Essendon supporter. Uh, so possibly the most naturally gifted and certainly the unluckiest of the Danaher brothers. Uh, Neil was a superb half-bank flanker who came to Essendon from Assumption College. He went about his business with a minimum of fuss and was so quiet on and off the field that it was inevitable that he'd been nicknamed Rowdy. <laughs> At his best, Neil Danaher boasted pace, smooth skills, and commanding aerial prowess. He also had an extremely sharp football brain. So as a player, I mean, great player, great coach, Mm -hmm. and just an incredible man. Yeah. Uh, And he's getting, you know, doing amazing things and getting the recognition he deserves for those things, which is great. Yep. The Rev. The Reverend, yeah. Um, all right, so this is going to sound confusing, Charlie, but the Bombers started with a round three matchup against Carlton, the league's first ever match in March. They lost. I'll, I'm going to leave that with you. Okay. Because I'll come back to that. What It what feels like there. a riddle. In yeah. round two, the Dons opened their account the following week against the Saints in round one. They had a fight on their hands at three-quarter time at Windy Hill. <laughs> the Saints leading by two at half time. Then the Bombers uh, took charge. In the last quarter, they kicked 11 goals five to two goals one. To win by 84 points, Timmy Watson kicked seven, Alan Davis five, and Terry Danaher inaccurate with 30, uh, three goals seven. Round four, Terry Danaher kicked eight in a draw with the Doggies. Danaher starting on fire this season, Terry. Uh, during the Lions round five record-breaking 96-point win over the Bombers, coach Barry Davis received loud boos from the Bombers supporters as he went to address the team at three-quarter time. As a result of this, the following week, Ken Fletcher gathered the team at his place to address the issues. And whatever was said in this team meeting made a difference because as of the next week, they kicked off a nine-game winning streak. Amazing. What a response. Um, This started at Victoria Park against the Pies, where they hadn't won since 1967. Gary Folds with 32 disposals and young guns Terry Danaher and Paul Vanderhaar with five goals each, leading the Bombers to a 34-point victory. Round seven, the Ds were badly beaten by a Bombers side who played entertaining, attacking football. Terry Danaher with seven, Primer with three, Stephen Robbins accumulating 30 disposals around the ground for the Dons. 
Round eight, the Cats led the Bombers by 10 at three-quarter time and three halfway through the last and looked certain to carry on home for the win. Enter Crackers Keenan. In the last 15 minutes, he kicked three goals one and he helped pull off a remarkable come-from-behind one-point victory. Round nine, a close game against the Hawks. The winning goal was kicked when Essendon slammed the ball into attack and there was a goal-square scramble. Uh, no one could take possession until the Don. Stephen Robbins swooped in from the pocket and kicked it off the ground to put the Bombers up by eight points. Uh, giving them a, an insurmountable lead with little time left. TD, Terry Danaher, put in a commanding performance as well. He kicked another seven in an eight-point win. He actually sat on 43 goals at this stage of the season, leading the goal-kicking in the league, mm. round nine. However, round 10, in a win over South Melbourne at Windy Hill, Terry Danaher was cleaned up by ex-bomber Neville Fields, who ironically had been trade, traded for him. Yep. Um, he collected him with an elbow and he scrambled for a loose ball, uh, but subsequently his jaw was broken and he would miss the next seven matches. Ugh. Round 11, the Bombers earned a courageous win over the Tigers. They led by 39 points at three-quarter time, but the Tigers hit back and got within two goals. But Essendon proved their medal with three goals in the last six minutes to power away to a 24-point win. The Dons had to hose down talk of our premiership contention, especially after last year's big calls saying they were you know, right up there for the flag. That's right, yeah. Against the Roos in round 12, the Bombers' defence was excellent in holding them goalless for almost one and a half hours. They were zero goals seven at half time. The young, bom- young Bombers just too speedy and skillful in the air for the Roos and they ran out 37-point winners. Can't imagine Ron Barassi would be happy with that. No. The Saints took it up to the Dons for three quarters at Moorabbin in round 13, but then all but they all but gave up for the final quarter. Well, seven goals to three. Bombers won by 39. After the match, the Bombers' barrackers demonstrated in front of the members' stands, chanting, Animals! 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 Because remember that incident last season? That's right, where they called them all. Yeah, mm, yeah. Pack of animals. Uh, Essendon made it nine wins in a row when they beat the Doggies in an unspectacular game at Windy Hill. Donnell and Torbett with three goals each in Terry Danaher's absence. They then had a four-game losing streak, after which they arrested their slump with a convincing 40-point win over the Cats. The game was won in the third quarter when the Bombers slammed on five goals in a sensational eight-minute burst. Max Crow was excellent for the Bombers with 31 disposals, 14 marks, one goal and 21 hitouts. Uh, and their final win of the season was round 21. Uh, the Dons needed to beat South to secure a, a finals berth. Both Danaher's demoralised the Swans and made it look foolish for releasing them to Essendon. Oh, right. Most newspapers had them both sharing best on ground honours. They combined for 10 of the team's 13 goals in a 19-point win. Massive. Love it. Mm. Good way to finish. Absolutely. Bombers back in finals. Well, they, they finished on a loss the following week. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, but... Yeah. Not really, but... but. Looking pretty good. Yeah, look, finals. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Can't be, yeah, can't be upset about that. I mean, we'd like to win them. But... <laughs> uh, so, lead goal kicker for the Dons this year was Terry Danaher, even in just his 15 games, had got those 57 goals. Uh, and Simon Madden second with 39. The Crichton medal in 79 went to Simon Madden for the second time. Very good. Yeah. Which takes us up to fourth spot, where we've got Fitzroy. The Roy's back in finals yeah, as well. First time for a long time. Love it. Uh, so, yes, sorry. Fitzroy with 15 wins and seven losses. Uh, coached by Bill Stephen and captained by Ron Alexander. Uh, debutants include Malcolm Bramley, Keith McLeod, Leon Harris, and ex-Pi Max Richardson has now come across as well. Mm. Um, a lot of what I'm reading comes from uh, football from the Football Almanac. Um, there's an article written about Fitzroy's outstanding 1979 season by Philip Mendes. Uh, so credit him for a lot of this stuff. Oh, great. 
Round one, the season began with a huge upset at the unfriendly Victoria Park. The Lions not won there in decades. Uh, they nominated- the old rivalry starting oh, again. The original. Um, the Lions dominated from start to finish against a highly rated Collingwood side. The large home crowd was unusually quiet for most of the second half. They and only really erupted with loud boos when veteran uh, Robert Walls was replaced late in the last quarter. Walls' response was just to uh, the point triumphantly at the scoreboard. Love it. Uh, it was the first time in 18 years they'd actually won there. The Lions beating Collingwood by 80 points. Oh, huge. Huge. Three losses followed. Round five, Fitzroy dominated the game against Essendon from beginning to end. Quinlan returned from injury to double team with Beecroft for a combined 13 goals. Um, and dashing on ball at Graham Gabby Allen was also very good. In round six, the Lions drew away in the last quarter after three close quarters with a competitive Melbourne side to remain fifth on the ladder. The two tall timbers of Beecroft and Quinlan dominated again, um, Lions by 23 there. In round eight, the Lions stormed home with 16 goals to four in the second half against ladder leaders North Melbourne. Game highlights include a long torpedo goal by Wilson, a sharp handball by Wilson to Conlon who goaled on the run and two big contested marks by Beecroft in the goal square. Um, unfortunately in this game, defender Brian Brown suffered a season-ending broken leg. Uh, round nine, the Lions steadied after a slow start to beat bottom of the table St Kilda and remained fourth on the ladder. In round 10, Robert Walls returned from injury to help Fitzroy defeat a lowly Footscray by 45 points. Uh, highlights of a big scoring third quarter included two very clever goals by O'Keefe and a strong mark and handball by Fowler, resulting in a goal to Quinlan. Um, around about this time, the club also started looking at the possibility of heading back to Brunswick Street Oval. Oh, back okay. to the heartland. They had some plans to rebuild and redevelop the area. Yep. I mean, as we know, it didn't happen, but... If only. They had some plans, if, yeah, if, if only. It's like a bit of a sliding doors, you know? Things might have been very different for them if they had. Yeah, Maybe. Probably not. No. <laughs> no. Uh, round 11, an easy 67-point win over Geelong at home meant Fitzroy retained third place on the ladder. Uh, highlights included a superb goal on the run by McMahon and a very long goal by McCarthy and three bounces by Allen. Round 12, the Lions romped home in match of the day before 56,000 people at VFL Park against Hawthorne, which saw them take second place on the ladder. In round 13, the Lions retained second spot with a comfortable 26-point win over lowly South Melbourne. Uh, Beecroft was very good in this game, as was Wilson. And Max Richardson was proving a very fine acquisition from Collingwood. In round 14, they took on the Blues at Prince's Park for match of the day in front of 58,736 people. Nice. Um, it was a big crowd for Fitzroy there. Um, unfortunately, they couldn't get the job done in that the pressure was far too great. Carlton were too good. In round 16, it was fourth-placed Fitzroy versus third-place Essendon, and the Lions held sway all day. Although it got close at the end, Gary Wilson was concussed early, and the Roys relied on their small, other smalls in Harris, Irwin, and Allen to get the points. Uh, Walls and Beecroft combined for eight goals, Lions winning by 13. Round 17 was the one we mentioned last week, Charlie. Oh, yes. and you might want to block your ears for this. But the Lions broke the VFL record score set by Footscray in 1978. In a game against Melbourne at the end when long-time defender Harvey Merrigan booted the team's 33rd goal late in the last quarter. I don't really want to talk about the Lions beating the Ds by the biggest score ever just before we played <laughs> the Lions in the finals. Look, they won by 190 points. Oh, the, my lo- gosh. The, the record-winning margin still. Uh, Full forward Bob Beecroft kicked 10 goals, three. Other highlights of this goal-kicking feast included two brilliant goals from Mick Conlon. Um, Gary Wilson racked up 42 disposals. Warwick Irwin, 36, in a display that saw him kick five goals, five. So, yeah, a very poor day out for Melbourne. For Melbourne, (laughs) seriously. 
Um, round 18, the Hawks belted the Lions in the first half with veteran full forward Michael Moncrief dominating with five goals, which caused Bill Stephen, Fitzroy's coach, to make many changes at halftime. Centre half back Chris Smith moved forward and Gerald McCarthy, Jared McCarthy went into defence and veteran Merrigan was shifted from the wing to replace Serafini on Moncrief. And it all came together in a colossal last quarter. The Sunday Press described the Roys as the new league's glamour team as they won by 11 points. Round 20, they beat the Saints by 16. Round 21, propelled by an amazing 12-goal second quarter, the Lions easily held off a struggling Footscray at Junction Oval. The second quarter goal feast included two big pack marks by Beecroft resulting in goals, a lovely snap by Irwin, a great tackle by Quinlan creating an easy goal for Wilson, and three consecutive goals on the run by Conlon. And then in round 22, they had a chance to consolidate double, the double chance and finish second or third, mm-hmm. but... Um, they gave up a last quarter lead to lose to the Cats by five points and thus being relegated to a elimination final. Yeah. But still, they're in the first they're back in finals for the first time since nineteen sixty. Wow. When Len Smith was their coach. Yeah, oh yeah. Great. Yeah. So almost twenty years out of the finals. Yeah. Huge. Yeah. Just be excited. Um so our lead, our lead goal kicker was Bob Beecroft with 87, I believe. Um, all but seven of those were kicked against the Demons. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Bernie Quinlan, second most with 48. And the Mitchell Medal in 1979 went to Gary Wilson for the fourth time, a uh, second time in a row there. Yeah. Huge. Which now leaves Melbourne with the longest finals, missing finals for the longest time. At this point. Yeah. Yeah. They hadn't made Jeez. it since their 64, 64 flag. yeah. God. Mm. Huge. Uh, so taking us up to third spot, and we've got Collingwood with the same amount of wins and losses as Fitzroy, 15 and 7, but a slightly higher percentage of 126.7. So captained by Ray Shaw and coached by Tommy Hafey. Mm. Debutants include Bill Varley, Dennis Banks, Mark Hannabury, David Toomey, grandson of Bill Sr. and nephew of 1953 players Bill, Mick and Pat. They acquired Ross Brewer from Melbourne in a trade for Phil Carmen. Mm-hmm. But the biggest debutante was Peter Dacos. Ah, finally. Now, we've, we've had a fan of our show, Gav, who runs the Collingwood Football History Tours, pining for Peter Dacos since the very early days. Yeah. So, He's Charlie, here. I'm, I'm going to give you a rest. Okay. Because let's hear from Gav. Let's, let's, let's hear Gav talk about Peter Dacos. It's Gary here from the Collingwood Footy Tour and it's my proud honour to introduce to you the greatest player to ever strap on a pair of footy boots. It's none other than Peter Dacos. Dakes was born in Fitzroy, a suburb in inner city Melbourne in 1961 and debuted for Collingwood in round four of 1979 versus St Kilda at Victoria Park at the age of 17. He was a star from his first game, racking up 28 possessions in a Collingwood record score of 31 goals, 21-207 to the Saints, 3 goals, 11-29. Known as the Macedonian marvel due to his parents' country of birth, Dacos had a phenomenal ability to kick goals from seemingly impossible angles or when under the most extreme pressure. He played much of his early career on the ball in the centre, then later as a goal-sneaking forward. There are too many Dacos memories, including the miracle goal against West Coast in 1990, the boundary line snap against the Tigers in 91, the goal against Brisbane from behind the post, and the first goal in the 1990 grand final. But for me, it was in 1993 against Geelong, a round two clash in front of 24,000 fans on the 3rd of April. Geelong's mercurial Gary Ablett kicked seven goals, and Dacos booted eight to help the Maggies win by 10 points at Victoria Park. This match proved to be a great swan song for Dakes, 
as he only managed three more games after before retiring at the age of 31 years old. He played 250 league games and kicked 549 goals. He also won Copeland trophies in 1982 and 1988 and topped Collingwood's goal-kicking list on four occasions. He was also a regular Victorian State of Origin representative. But the highlight of Dacos' career came in 1990 when he was a member of Collingwood's first premiership team for 32 years. He was included in the forward pocket in the Magpies official team of the 20th century. And in 1999, Dacos was inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame. All right, so as, that. as we talked about, um, the round one match against the Lions was an embarrassment. They lost by 80 points. That's right, yeah. So round two, they finally opened their account, which was against the Hawks at Prince's Park, kicking away in the second quarter and staying on top. Uh, Craig Davis was great with seven goals three, while Rene Kink and Ray Shaw were also good. In round three, they were embarrassed after allowing the Roos to come from 32 points down and beat them by 28. And Hafey was scathing in his criticism. Very hard on his team, we know that. Mm-hmm. This was the result. Round four, they took on the Saints at Victoria Park and they jumped out of the blocks with four goals in the first 10 minutes. Saints fans regained some hope when the previously benched McDonald gold from a rare errant pass by McCormack. But Ray Shaw answered with two quick goals and then Stewart further reinforced the Pies' accuracy and supremacy with a couple more of his own. The margin was 55 points just 40 minutes into the game. By half-time, the Saints were a painful 72 points down and Hafey sensed a percentage booster. He encouraged them to go for the jugular for total domination. They went on to win with a second-half annihilation, totally humiliating St Kilda. Defenders Worthington, Magro and McCormack continued to form the first line of attack, surging downfield in waves as they shared the ball around. Seven goals in the opening 12 minutes of the second half had the Saints bewildered. The Magpies were relentless and showed the Saints no mercy in slamming on another 10 goals in the final quarter. So 18 goals to one in an hour of football saw the margin blow out to an astonishing 178 points. Oh. At this point, the biggest ever record margin yeah. in the league. Yep. And they would, they would hold that for 13 rounds. <laughs> um, this was also Peter Dacos's debut game. Hey. Mm. Playing in the centre on debut, the, greatest, the biggest debut win ever. Um, and although he failed to register a goal in the route, his first kick sailed out of bounds on the full. He did enough with a lazy 21-kick seven handballs to win a television on World of Sports highlights segment. <laughs> um, so, yeah, massive win. Very demoralising for St Kilda, but Collingwood would have loved that. Yeah, absolutely. And Tommy Hafey would have loved that. Just foot yeah, down on just the, keep on the going. throat the yeah. whole game. It doesn't happen that much anymore, does no, it? No, not really. Like, you just... Any time anyone gets sort of... I mean, It happened to West Coast a few times this season in 2022. Right. Yeah. Um, round five, another disciplined Pies effort saw an easy 48-point win over the Dogs, inspired by this pre-game rev-up by Tommy Hafey, um, and credit for this goes to Rhett Bartlett. Really wanted. Go with confidence of the ball. We went for six goals every quarter last week, and we got them. Well, today, I want everybody to be thinking about those six goals. You have got to fight like hell. Really fight. Not just a token bloody effort. You've got to fight for every second. 7,200 of them to make certain that you are not going to lapse in concentration and you're not going to let your opponent get any easy kick because he's the bastard who might push you out of the side. Remember that. Now, right out, fellas, right behind Ray. Remember all the time we are going for an unselfish display again. That's the way it's got to be. Give it everything you've got. Round seven, the Pies were again miserly and well-drilled as they beat the Cats convincingly at Waverley, their defence holding the Cats to just six goals in a 41-point win. 
In round eight, Collingwood made the Swans look like tired old warriors whose hearts were no longer in the battle. They smacked them around by 87 points. Craig Davis was again great with eight goals, while the Shaw brothers, Ronnie Weirmouth and Bill Varley, broke up the South defence with clever, unpredictable football and foot passing. Um, what was their percentage? 126. Okay. It doesn't seem... Yeah, from what you've been saying... These yeah. massive wins. Collingwood came out ready to play against the Tigers in round nine. They built up a lead from across the three breaks before running out 52-point winners. Craig Davis with another eight. Round 11 was an easy win over the Ds. In round 13, the Pies took less than half an hour to completely crush the Hawks with near faultless display of handball and forward play. They raced to an 81-point lead at halftime, their defence allowing only two goals in. Yeah, wow. Uh, Graham Anderson, in his first game in a year, kicked six goals, including five in the final quarter. Craig Davis added four straight in a 105-point win. God, they are putting teams away. You're right. 126 doesn't sound seem right. Um, they had a fight in their hands against St Kilda in Mar- at Moorabbin in round 14. Um, and the first three quarters were not the cakewalk that their earlier season encounter had been. They trailed the Saints by a goal at three-quarter time, mm. which is a good turnaround for St Kilda. Uh, but they had a big last quarter, which saw them win by 49 points. Tony Shaw in this game was flattened by side- Gary Sidebottom and had to be revived with smelling salts. <laughs> uh, round 15, the Pies lost to the Kangaroos by 57 at Victoria Park, and suddenly there were rumblings of discontentment with Tommy Hafey. Oh, we don't like those. Oh, no. Uh, but the rumblings were forgotten in round 16, which was another big win for the Pies. This time they destroyed the Bulldogs by 122 points. Uh, Ex-Tiger Alan Edwards was lively in attack and Kevin Morris was also prominent. Captain Ray Shaw kicked five goals in what was his 100th game. But the real stars in a somewhat disappointed Tommy Hafey were the Pies defenders who held the Dogs to just three goals. Yeah, Disappointed yep. because they could have won by more, I suppose. Now, round 16, in the lead-up to this match, they acquired former Tiger Alan Edwards after a 15-week negotiation with the Tigers. The Tigers were furious and they declared war on Collingwood, warning that no Magpie player was safe. They were coming after them. Coming after them. Uh, round 17, the Pies had a 21-point win over the Bombers at Windy Hill in what was the, it was the first time all season the Pies had beaten a team higher than itself on the ladder. The Bombers had their chances with two goals, six. Um, they snatched an, a lucky win over the Swans in round 19 after they trailed by 16 points at three-quarter time, but they won by eight. In round 20, the Pies had a fighting win over the Tigers, who had no counter for Collingwood's finishing bursts. Um, they were led by Rene Kink and Graham Anderson, who kicked three and four goals respectively in a 20-point win. In round 21, Collingwood exposed flaws in Carlton's game, beating them by 19 points. The Pies applied lots of pressure, and it was their six-goal burst during the third quarter that saw them take a grip on the game. Um, Ron, Russell Olsen and Kevin Morris instrumental in the win with more than 60 possessions between them and the Pies had to win their final round match against the D's and hope the Lions lost so they could snatch third place which they did the Pies won by 51 with its strength and teamwork too much for the D's Ricky Byron returning from injury and former D Ross Brewer kicking two, five second half goals and the Lions lost by five points thus the Pies finished third mm, got themselves that double chance as you they mentioned did. yeah it was some massive wins yeah Huge. Uh, so a lead goal kicker at Collingwood this year was Craig Davis with 88. Uh, Rene Kink second there with 54. And the Copeland Trophy in 79 went to Peter Moore. Yes, good. Yeah. Uh, so up to second spot and not surprised to hear the Kangaroos are right up there again, of course. Yep. With 17 wins, five losses and a percentage of 123.6. Uh Captained by, well, Keith Gregg 
and coached by Rainbow Ron Barassi. Cool. And there's a captain change, so we'll talk about yes, that in a minute. Yes, we yeah. certainly will. Um, there's two debutants I want to talk about because they're big South Australian stars. So yes. Graham Corns and Russell Ebert. Yes, all right. Well, I mean, massive names. They are. Huge names. So uh, let's start with Graham Corns. Champion Glen Egg, Glenelg football player in the Sandfall between 67 and 82. So he obviously goes back. Uh, he played mostly at Ruck Rover and centre-half forward. In his 317 club games for Glenelg, he kicked 339 goals and won the club best and fairest award three times. He captained Glenelg in 78 uh, before he came over and was a member of their 73 premiership team. And then Russell Ebert. We've spoken, we've spoken about Ebert before, haven't Bits we? Bits and pieces, yeah. I think. But considered one of the greatest players in the history of Australian rules football. Often overlooked because, you know, didn't, didn't spend most of his time in South Australia. Yep. Um, he's the only player to have won four McGarry medals and off the field was quite shy and unassuming, uh, preferring to let his football do the talking. Uh, Ebert probably came as close as any player in the history in history to exhibiting a complete mastery over all the essential skills of the game. He was a superb mark, handled the ball brilliantly in all conditions, and, tip, and typically disposed disposed of it, whether by foot or by hand, with pinpoint accuracy. Yeah. Um, so Russell Ebert played twenty five games for North, and that was it. Yep. Graham Corns played five. Yeah. So not massive careers in the VFL, but they're icons of the game. Huge. That, that need to be mentioned. And both, no, well, Ebert's a legend, AFL Hall, Hall of Fame legend, yeah. yeah. yeah so, Absolutely. Yeah. So very much needed to be mentioned. Yes, yeah. Um, and North would have thought they'd hit the jackpot when they finally got the cross as well. yeah. And looking at Ebert, he played every single game. Um, all right, round one, North withstood a spirited Essendon team and were able to win by 20 points. Malcolm Blight kicked seven goals, four, and Melrose had 31 disposals in an opening round win. Blight backed this up with eight goals, five in round two against the Dogs and another win. In round three, North couldn't score a goal in the first quarter against the Pies at Arden Street and fell 32 points behind at the first break. With 40, 14 scoring shots to four in the second quarter, they should have taken the lead but still trailed by two goals at half time. But they turned it on when it mattered in the second half, 14 goals, six to seven goals, eight, and they won by 28 points. Malcolm Blight with just another seven goals. Round four, the Roos used a big third quarter to defeat the Cats. Blight with five this time, John Byrne with 39 disposals. Taking on the Swans in round five, the Roos struggled for the first half, stabilised its game in the third and unleashed a magnificent final term assault against the Breeze to win by 50 points against the Swans. Blight wasn't playing in this game. Glenn Denning, however, bobbed up and kicked six for the Roos. In round six, North continued their unbeaten streak with a round six thriller over the Tigers at Waverley. Uh, Blight and Shimmer kicked three goals each, Graham Melrose big in this game also. Um, they won that round six encounter by five points. Round seven was another thriller, this time with the Blues at Princes Park. Deep into time one in the final quarter, Carlton led by eight points before goals to Stephen Easton and Ross Glendening saw the Roos fall over the line, much to the shock of the Carlton faithful. Glendening's opponent, Kevin Heath, was clearly injured and could barely run, but because both reserves were already on the ground, he had to remain on the field with disastrous consequences. Gary Dempsey was dominant in the ruck, hauling in 16 marks. Um, and also during this game, many Carlton supporters in front of the old press box were baiting North coach Ron Barassi, who had his window open um, and could probably hear every word. Oh, his really? Direction. Yeah. 
Round nine, the Roos accumulated a massive score of 23 goals, 18, 156 against the Demons, with Ross Glendening booting 10 for the winners from the half-forward flank. Now, round 10, we talked a bit about this last week. The league had asked North Melbourne and Hawthorne to play a game in Sydney. That's right, yes. Um, North had said yes. The Hawks agreed mainly because it meant they wouldn't have to play a game at Arden Street. <laughs> um, this, however, was also Keith Gregg's last match as captain. He was just sick of the constant harassment by Barassi. Um, because one thing Ron said to him, and uh, language award alert here, if it wasn't for football, you'd be nothing but a shit plumber. Oh, Jesus. So okay. North lost a very entertaining game there to Hawthorne. But, I mean, it's the Norm Smith school of coaching. You're, like, mm-hmm. you're hard on your best players. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And it, Which happened to him. Yeah. Ron Barassi was picked on by Norm Smith to no end. And it, and it worked on him, but it obviously yeah. doesn't work on some people. Yeah, and it'll have Keith Gregg asking for a transfer at the end of the year, which he doesn't. Um, but like it got to that point where they just couldn't stand each other or he couldn't stand it yeah. and had to leave. Um, so, round 11, and taking over the captaincy was Wayne Schimmelbush, I should say. Yes. Round 11, the Saints surprised North Melbourne with their physical strength in round 11 and raced to a 28-point lead, but North whittled away at it, with Ebert and Nettlefold leading the charge. Four minutes into time one with the Saints four points down. Who should stand up for St Kilda but their 66 hero Barry Breen sprinting away from the pack and letting fly with a 40-metre bomb. But, Charlie, just like 1966, it rolled through for a behind and the Saints lost by three points. Or I should say the Kangaroos won by three points. Okay, okay. In round 14, the Roos stemmed the losses and were better when it mattered against the Cats. Um, in a hard-fought second and fourth quarters. Crosswell kicked four and Shimmer was excellent in his new role of captain, um, not seeming to affect him at all. They took on the Pies at Victoria Park in round 15 and were led by fifth gamer Roger Podolzak with three goals in the opening stanza. Crosswell and Ray Shaw tangled in front of the Pies social club, which led to a Barassi dressing down at quarter time. Um, we know how much he loves uh, yep. Crosswell. The Roos had, their, had the pies on their knees at half-time, then proceeded to dig the knife in with seven goals, one to five behinds in the third quarter. The pies could do nothing in the last quarter as the Roos ran out 57-point winners. Round 16, at half-time in their match against the Swans, they trailed by three goals but ended up winning by 22. Dempsey, very big there for the Kangaroos. They took on the Tigers in round 17. The Tigers led for most of the match, but the North turned it on in the final quarter. Um, Stephen McCann shutting down... Tigers full forward Michael Roach Round 18 in a loss to the Blues at Arden Street The following audio was recorded of Barassi addressing his team That's what he wants You are a I'll tell you why You've got the bloody football game beaten You come down here Not concentrated The ball goes out towards the Carlton small man You stay back with your man You could have got to the Carlton small man But I know I'm going to protect myself I don't want to break John bad, Darrell, but to me, it's probably the cause you're bloody not switched on properly. Now, you get over and try and mind the bloody forward pocket, OK? Stephen, you go to centre-half back, and you go to full-back. You weren't anywhere near that bloke. They're playing four yards from him, and he's a good lead, and it comes out from the bloody back line very well. Keith, you've done a typical bloody... Thing. The ball's gone over. Oh, I couldn't come back near me. You could have run and intercepted that first goal or second goal, what it was, and you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? That's bloody right. Now, if you both think I'm stirred up, you're bloody right. You're bloody right. If you are bloody fierce in your desire to do it right, you'd do it. 
Now that's got to have a bloody forward line do well, and that bloody back line play. This is too big a match, and too much bloody at stake for their bloody be like that. That bloody forward line's playing tremendous. Kevin Bryant, fantastic. Don't know if I want to be addressed like that. <laughs> no. Round 19, the, the Roos annihilated an up-and-coming Lions by 67 points at Junction Oval. Gary Dempsey marked strongly and brought Melrose and Casson into the game, who were much better than Wilson and Irving and Irwin. Kerry Good with five goals. Around this time, Barassi flew John Nichols over from Adelaide, uh, where he'd been coaching Glenelg in 77 and 78, because he wanted Nichols to give some advice to his rucks. Oh, okay. So handy when you can call in players of that calibre. Yeah. Around 20... The Demons stuck with the Kangaroos for a half, trailing by only a goal at the break, but Glenn Denning let loose with five goals from centre-half forward. Xavier Tanner kicked three as the Roos did whatever they wanted in a 72-point win. Mm. In round 21, in an effortless fashion, the Kangaroos humiliated their 70s rival Hawthorne with a 105-point thumping at Princess Park. God, there were some massive wins this year. Yeah, they relentlessly tore the Hawks apart. Blight kicked five. Keith Gregg was dominant on the wing. Uh, the Roos kicked eight goals in the last 12 minutes of the game to really boost morale with finals just around the corner. Mm. Um, they had a good 79-point win over the Saints to end the season, but it was more bad luck for Keith Gregg because he broke his arm and would miss the finals, which is uh, really sad because he also injured himself in 77 and missed their whole 77 finals That's campaign right, as well. Yeah. Um, the 1979 season was the first year since entering the VFL in t- 1925 that North had beaten all 11 other teams in the one season. Oh, yeah. That's a good start. It is. Like that. Yeah. It's surprising they hadn't done it in 74, 75, 76, 76. 77 yeah, or 78. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. We always got, you've always got those little bogey teams, you don't do, you? absolutely. And they're often not the ones you'd think, right? No. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, so, the lead goal kicker for North was, of course, Malcolm Blight with Ross Glendening just one behind him. Uh Blight had 60, Glendening had 59. Because Glendening's a defender, generally. Yeah, not bad at all. Swingman. Um, Ebert and Corton's also added a few to that, you know, from, yeah. the, from the middle, which is yeah. pretty impressive. Corton's in his five games. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the Sid Barker Award in 79 went to Gary Dempsey. Nice. Yes. So and a very, uh, very convincing year from... The, the ruse this year, but not quite as convincing as our latter leaders, our minor premiers, being Carlton, uh, with 19 wins and three losses, a percentage of 139.6, captain coached by Alex Jezelenko. Yes. Debutants include Robert Klomp, Michael Jez, Alex Marco, Marco? M-A-R-C-O-U, Marco, and Marco. Wayne the Dominator Johnson. Yes, the Dominator. An outstanding big game player. Uh, he played his football with immense verve, intensity, aggression, pace and flair. In 1975, aged just 18, he was recruited by VFA club Paran and he did enough in his four-season, 68-game, 173-goal career with them to earn selection in its official team of the century. Four years, team yeah. of the century. Pretty bloody good. Uh, his last game for the... The Two Blues? Yeah, that's the brand name. Okay. I'll say that again. His last game for the Two Blues was the victorious First Division Grand Final against Preston in 78 when he was one of the best players on view. Uh, His display interested two VFL clubs in Carlton and Melbourne and Johnson ended up throwing his lot in with Carlton, which isn't surprising Mm -hmm. at this time in the D's history. And uh, nicknamed the Dominator not for anything he did on the field. 
Oh, okay. It's all about his pull with the ladies. Apparently. Yeah, the yeah. dominator. Um, <laughs> pre-season, Rod Ashman asked for a transfer to North Melbourne. Not surprisingly, Carlton flatly refused and Ashman was forced to stand out of the game. Months of impasse ensued before the Kangaroos eventually backed down and Rod resumed his career in the Navy Blue. Now, I said I'd come back to this, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Carlton started the season with round three. Okay, the- I don't... Yep. Okay, great. The VFL bypassed a law that stated football was not allowed to be played on Crown land between October and March under the ground control regulations of the Victorian state government. These regulations required grounds on Crown land to be shared for six months with each football and cricket. Yes. But they played the game on their own ground, Waverley. Okay. So they brought it forward as a spectacle, knowing those two teams would pull a crowd. So so they... They played before round one. Yes, they played round their round three match against Essendon. They brought that forward to round one to, to before, before round, one. round one, and then they both teams had a bye in round three. Yep. I mean, the AFL is uh, the VFL is just doing some mad things. I mean, yes and no. We've done this more recently. We've had those standalone. I think Sydney and West, Greater Western Sydney and the Swans played their first game the week before. Collingwood used to play Sydney in a standalone weekend every now and then, so it's not unheard of. Okay. Yeah. And so the first match ever played on in March as well. Yeah. So slowly encroaching on cricket. Yes. Um, so they took on Essendon at Waverley uh, and they won that game by 21 points in front of 41,717 people. Uh, Essendon was capable of keeping close with their opponent in the opening term but was run off their feet by the pacier Carlton. Newcomers Johnson and Marco were promising in their debuts for Carlton. Mike Fitzpatrick showed he was back to good form in marking and ruck duels. And Mark McClure was uh, the clear winner from the outset, dominating the Blues' attacks. The following week, in round one, okay. uh, the Blues crushed... I'm really glad we explained that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I, I left you on a cliffhanger because yeah. I wanted... It was really blowing my mind. Uh, the Blues crushed the Pussycats in round one. Mike Fitzpatrick controlled the rucks and kicked four goals, while Rod, the ghost, Galt, added another four at the top of the... The uh, top of a pleasing spread of goal scorers. Round two. A confident and deadly accurate Carlton team continued their winning ways with a nice little smashing of the Tigers by 51 at MCG. Wayne Harms shifted to the centre, helped set up the victory. Um, Fitzpatrick was again good. The following match was round four. And Vinny the Cat Catoggio had the Carlton faithful roaring on the Saturday afternoon at Junction Oval. Uh, on the baller in the forward pocket, he jinxed and dodged his way around or through the Fitzroy defence and helped himself to six goals in a 57-point win. Around about this time, Percy Jones was dropped for the game, being told to lose some weight. Oh. He's a bit lazy. And he'd, uh, there's a story of him in a time trial. I think they were running up Sydney Road and he jumped on a tram. <laughs> and he got caught. Uh, round five, a plucky and determined Melbourne team seemed almost to cause a boil over when they led the Blues by seven points at three-quarter time. Uh, but in the great last quarter comeback, Carlton kicked five goals, five to the Demons, one goal, eight Couldn't to get, get home by 14 points. Round six, Carlton trailed the Hawks by as much as five goals in the first half. But after the long break, the Blues fans went into raptures as their team first collared, then obliterated Hawthorne in Jezelenko's 250th game. Blues winning by 10 goals. Uh, Jones came back for round seven. He must have lost some weight. Uh, but the Blues lost that game. Round eight, the Saints were anchored to the foot of the VFL letter and expected to provide little more than the training run for the Blues. But they served it up to the Blues until midway through the third quarter, when eventually Carlton's class saw the margin blow out to 39 points on the final siren. 
Um, it's real, always the way. Yeah. It's, Psychological. But, yeah, but teams step up against the top team, like the bottom teams step up against the top teams because it's their way of proving that they're not as bad. But the top team always go in thinking, oh, we're going to win this easily. We just need to turn up. You're right, yeah. Yeah, mm. I do. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> um, round nine, although the Bulldogs were languishing in 10th place on the ladder and Carlton sat above them at the top. Uh, I'm going to reread that. Blues took on the Dogs um, and the Blues were just a point in front at half time, but it took another premiership quarter blitz to shake the tenacious doggies off. Uh, once they broke away, the final margin blew out to 49 points, which was probably a bit unfair to Footscray in the end because they put in a better effort than that. Round 10, played in front of a jam-packed 46,000 strong crowd at Princess Park. Uh, the Blues took on the Magpies. And this was the, deb- deb- this was the debut of the Bluebirds. Do you know who the Bluebirds are? Uh, I want to say some sort of band. The Bluebirds were a group of ladies that comprised an American-style cheerleading group that would attend home games and sometimes away games for several years. Several years? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, as, as entertainment. Yeah. A very American thing, but Seriously? it worked for a while. Weird that, like, that they're just the only ones doing it, though. Like, surely... At the moment. Ah, okay, mm. okay. The game is best remembered for Stan Magro's shirt front on Alex Jezelenko, which inspired the Blues to a stirring come-from-behind victory. Percy Jones' celebration as each goal sailed over his head underlined the joy the side got in beating its arch-rival. One goal in particular on the run from Wayne Harms in front of the social club sent old Percy into a real spin. And there's footage of that in, must be sensational 70s, him just going nuts, goal after goal. Bruce Duell was reported for the first time in his career for striking Phil Manasseh and was suspended for two games. Manasseh received the reprimand for striking Bruce and was also found not guilty of striking Fitzpatrick. Round 11, a sunny day at Lakeside Oval provided Carlton with a surprisingly stern test against the lowly Swans. They led by five points at half-time. Um... And there were still five points in the game at the last break, but the Blues took the advantage in, an, in a freewheeling last term. They kicked six goals four to the Swan, six goals three, and got home by a goal. So Carlton's just underestimating the, the poor side, aren't they? Yeah. And they, just, they can turn it on when they want to. Yeah. I don't know if that's worrying or not. I mean, I know who wins the flag in the end. So <laughs> Round 13, Carlton bounced back from the previous week's defeat to Geelong to crush Richmond by 56 points at Princess Park. The Blues dominating from the outset, kicking five goals three against the wind and adding a further 16 goals nine for the match. Uh, speedy rover Alex Marco booting five goals and creating many others. Around about this time, Percy Jones was dropped again, told again to shape up. Round 14 on a typical Waverley Park day with the wind howling from the southern end. Uh, the Blues celebrated Bristol's 200th game in style by thumping Fitzroy. Uh, having won the toss, Jezza kicked with the gale and the Blues had 11 scoring shots in the opening quarter, kicking only four goals seven. However, the second quarter opened with Carlton running the ball into the wind in waves. They kicked four goals to Fitzroy's none in the first 10 minutes and they were eight goals in front and that was kind of the match. Um, round 15 for the second week in a row, Carlton's trademark trademark third quarter blitz came in the second term instead this time the victims were Essendon uh, they were blown out of the water by Carlton seven goals six for the quarter and from then on they were never really threatened Mark McClure and Rod Galt provided uh, reliable marking t- targets up front kicking seven goals between them round 17 they managed a 28 point win over the Hawks uh, at this stage this is very important going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the Age published an exclusive investigation entitled The George Harris Capers, George Harris being the president of Carlton, yep. the man okay. who brought Brassie across from Melbourne, uh, looking at the financial mishaps George Harris had led his club into. 
Harris was furious at this, believing that someone on the committee had provided the information for this article. Oh. I just remember this for next episode. Okay, okay. Round 18, the match between Carlton and North was billed as the grand final preview. Financial muck around at Carlton, who would have thunk um, it? Yeah, and because they, they were investing in all these weird businesses. Like, okay. it's, he was trying to make money, using the club's money, but investing in... Sivalaki Hut. Yeah, no. just no, some weird, like, medical procedures and... I don't know, there was, there's some but weird yeah, stuff. Yeah, so he was sort of, yeah, okay. Like he was thinking outside the box, but it wasn't working. Yeah. And so they they published this. Um, and we'll, yeah, it has a big impact on the club. Yeah, interesting. Um, round 18 was billed as the grand final preview between North Melbourne and Carlton. However, the Blues went into the match without Jezelenko, who had slipped a disc and pinched a sciatic nerve when getting out of a chair. However, Rod Ashman was finally back after the impasse. Um, now, after a first quarter... The Blues blitzed the Roos in the second term, kicking seven goals five to two goals five. So his first game back is against the club that he was supposed to go yeah. to. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, however, the Roos used the breeze superbly when it was their chance in the third quarter, and they added 7-2 to Carlton's 1-2 to lead by four points at the last change. The wind dropped markedly at the last quarter got underway, but the rampant Blues couldn't be contained, and another seven-goal quarter by the ladder leaders brought victory by 22 points. Mm-hmm. Ironically, Ashman collected... 39 disposals and kicked two goals three in a best-on-ground oh, romp. That's huge. Mm. Round 19 was an easy win over St Kilda. Round 20 was a cold and wet afternoon where 25,000 people ventured to Arctic Park to watch Carlton beat a plucky Footscray team by six goals. 30 scoring shots to 14 told the story of the match. This was the only match for the season in which Carlton failed to, ski- to kick over 100 points. Sorry, only one of two occasions, sorry. Yep. Uh, explaining why their percentage is so it's high. so high, yeah. Uh, they lost in round 21 to Collingwood. So round 22, still burning from losing to Collingwood the previous week, the Blues came out smoking hot and booted eight goals in the first quarter against South. But the 10th place Swans, as so happens in the last round of each season, matched Carlton for intensity. They were right in the match at three-quarter time, trailing by just two goals. But then the Blues ran over the top by five goals to snatch the win and finish on top. And continue the story running of just, you know, giving people a sniff and then running away. Yeah, just doing yeah. what they need. But 19, 19 wins, three losses is a, is a very, very good season. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, so the lead goal kicker at the Blues this year was Ken Sheldon with 53. Mark McClure just behind him with 45. And the John Nichols medal in 79 went to Mike Fitzpatrick. Very nice. Yeah. Blues on top, not where we like to see him. Too. No, no, no. They deserve it though. Um, so no surprise in the Coles goals winner was of course Carlton four hundred two would have had to be. Now let's just get to the Brownlow Downlow very quickly. Oh please! The nineteen seventy nine Brownlow medal winner was Peter Moore of Collingwood. Um, Collingwood Ruckman Peter Moore won the 1979 Brownlow. He led for most of the count and finished with 22 votes. Fitzroy Rover Gary Wilson was second with 21 votes ahead of Melbourne winger Robbie Flower on 19. In his acceptance speech, Moore said the single reason for winning this year's medal was the faith coach Tommy Hafey placed in him, saying if Tom had not let Len Thompson go at the end of last year, I would not be standing here tonight. Um, and let's hear a little bit about what he has, uh, what Peter Moore said on the night. The winner of the 1979 Brownlow Medal. Tonight is the greatest thrill I've ever had in my football life and the life, it, you know, anyway. But um, the, the name of the game in football is, is to win premierships. And uh, unfortunately we didn't do it in 77 and Collingwood and the Collingwood supporters um, have been waiting for 21 or 22 years for a premiership and to me, although this is wonderful and I'm, you know, I'm really honoured to receive it, 
I think that uh, I'll just be forgetting about it and get out on Saturday and try and get best on the ground on Saturday. Finals, Charlie. Finals. So, we know who we've got. We've got Essendon, Essendon, Fitzroy, Collingwood, North Melbourne and Carlton. And our first game is the elimination final between fourth and fifth, uh, Fitzroy versus Essendon. And, uh, Look, the Bombers so, were the walking wounded going into yes. this final. Yep. Uh, they were missing Vanderhaar. Simon Madden played with a broken hand. Terry Danaher played on painkilling injections. Ronnie Andrews was also underdone. Um, so in a tremendous rebound from disappointment of the last round, the Roy smashed the Bombers from start to finish. Yep. Highlights included a solid mark and long torp goal by McMahon, a superb left foot snap by Wilson that resulted in a goal by Quinlan and a left foot snap on the run by Quinlan under pressure in his fourth, for his fourth. Um... Yeah, the newspaper also praised the dominant ruck work of Ron Alexander, the superlative halfback line of Higgins, Smith and Keyes, and the fine game from running forwards Irwin, Harris and Conlon. Bombers completely underdone. I mean, look at that first quarter. Yeah. Nine goals four to one goal three. Yeah, like you just can't come back from that, can you? No, nah, running out 81-point winners. Yes, so Fitzroy 17-22, to Essendon's 5-13-43. So... Uh, errant in front of goal as well when you're not getting that many shots at it yeah. is an ideal yeah it'd be nice if the Bombers could win to finals <laughs> yeah. uh, but Fitzroy showing why they were fourth and Essendon were fifth yeah. uh, so that takes us to the qualifying final to see uh, who Fitzroy was going to play uh, that was Collingwood North Melbourne and a closer affair in front of in, at the MCG in front of eighty, almost 85,000 people. Yeah, so the first half was pretty even, a very inaccurate Collingwood kicking seven goals, 17. Mm. But North turned on champagne football in the second half to overwhelm an inaccurate Collingwood by 39 points. Um, after trailing by 18 points at halftime, North slammed on 10 goals, two in the third quarter to demoralise Collingwood. Big Gary Dempsey subdued for the first two quarters, dominated the centre bounces and gave North unlimited opportunities. Players who had been in, unsighted in the first half suddenly burst into the game with dazzling display of pace, teamwork, aerial supremacy and de- deadly accuracy, kicking for goal to leave Collingwood floundering. Blight, who was selected at full forward, had an off day, but the elusive John Casson playing in the forward pocket was, the top, was in top form, finishing with five goals and contributing to several others. North's little men were also prominent. Mm. So yeah, so uh, North final score there, 18-13-121 to Collingwood's 9-28-82. Yeah. Uh, so that meant that Collingwood were to go, have to go on and play Fitzroy and North Melbourne beat the, uh, play the minor premiers in Carlton uh, the next week. So Collingwood-Fitzroy at the G in front of 87,000 people. Uh, yeah, look, Fitzroy started well in front of a huge crowd at the MCG, but, but for poor kicking at goal, would have led by more than six points at half-time. Uh, as they were 5.13 to 5.7. But mm. the Magpies runners, Barham, Anderson and Kink destroyed the Lions with seven goals in the third quarter. Uh, and the Premiership dream was over for the Lions as the Magpies went on to win by 22 points. Yeah. Um, the Lions actually kicked six goals in the last quarter, which kind of flattered them because Collingwood had all the play. Yep. Uh, this game was also utilised as a live action in the film version of David Williamson's favourite play, The Club. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, so the other game was played at Waverley on the same day in front of 70,000. So a good crowd for Waverley there uh, between Carlton and North Melbourne, as we mentioned. It was a tight first quarter with only one goal each. But Carlton really controlled the first half, but for inaccurate kicking, um, the margin at halftime fl- actually flattered North Melbourne. It was four goals 11 to three goals three. Um, however, set kicking to the freeway end 
Carlton exploded in the third quarter with a run of unanswered goals to put the issue beyond doubt by three-quarter time. Uh, they had kicked, what, seven goals to two. Mm-hmm. And then really, again, North Melbourne flat. The scoreline flattered North Melbourne in the last quarter, but it was really all Carlton at that point. Yep. Yep. So Carlton 15-21, 111 to North Melbourne's 11-7-73. Kenny Sheldon with four goals there. Michael Young and Trevor Keogh also good. Mm. So Carlton shoot through to the grand final. And the prelim is played between Collingwood and North Melbourne. Uh, North Melbourne will be going into this game pretty confident after the qualifying final. Well, yes and no. Well, because they'd beaten Collingwood, but Collingwood had more shots on goal, which is inaccurate. Mm. Um, it was a topsy-turvy match from the start, with North at times threatening to run away with the match, but three times during the match, the Pies had to fight back into the contest. The lead changed nine times during the first three quarters. There was persistent wrestling between Ruckman, Peter Moore and Gary Dempsey at centre bounces. Um, the Pies had pulled away to a 14-point lead at the last break, and many expected a Barassi positional ace to be pulled out. Um, but led by Ronnie Weemouth, the Pies kicked away to a 27-point win. Hafey was pleased with the way they finished off the game and finally got over the Kangaroos in an important game. Yes, they certainly did. So Collingwood final. into another grand final. Collingwood into another granny. 18-14, uh, 122, beating North's 13-17, 95. So that takes us to a grand final between a couple of a couple more uh, rivals, or newer rivalry, hmm. we say, at this stage. Uh, so, yes, Carlton Collingwood playing at the MCG in front of 113,500 people. I wouldn't say new rivals. They've pretty much been rivals since 1910. Since yeah, yeah, yeah. Like bath of the grand final. But, you know, the rivalry's come, rivalries come and go. Yeah. We've talked about this. We, d- we have. Um, now, yeah. um, now, 1979 was the first time the Norm Smith Medal was awarded. Ah, yes, it was. Struck to commemorate the memory of the late, great Norm Smith. Um, it's the judging panel for today's game would be Dr. Aylett, General Manager Jack Hamilton, Lou Richards, uh, Harry Butzel, and Alf Brown. So they'll be judging the best on ground for the grand final. Grand final. Um, grand final entertainment was John Farnham singing Waltzing Matilda and Mike Brady playing up there Kazali. Nice. Keep it Aussie. Yes. Um, so to hear a little bit about this, let's boot up that way back mm-hmm. when machine. Let's chat to Jezza. Let's chat to Jezza, the premiership coach and premiership captain. Yes. Yeah, huge. Welcome, Alex Jezelenko, captain, coach of Carlton today. Thanks, all. Mate, what a win. What a win indeed. What's better than beating Collingwood by five goals? Beating them by five points. How are you feeling now? I'm so happy for the smiles on the faces of Carlton supporters. Uh, I'm so happy for the players themselves who believe that they could win a grand final, and that's what it's all about, football. It's not just about playing footy. Football is about winning a grand final, and they worked very, very hard since last November for this flag, and all these little things count. I really love that you mentioned the supporters there, Jezza. It's not just me that guides them through that. There are many, many, many people that work behind the scenes. So from early last year, I bet you didn't expect to be standing up here as captain coach of Carlton receiving the Premiership Cup. Well, I always hope to be up there with a cup, but if you're talking about being a coach... No, I didn't have any expectations that this is what I'd be doing. Now, as the coach, do you feel like you've adopted some of those Barassi coaching principles? 
well, surely I have, but, you know, he's left a big impression on me. And most of his things that he said before, well, I still get the boys to go to, to do them out there on the field. Plus a few of my own, plus a few of Big Nick's. It's been a great season. The Blues have uh, been scoring freely and you lost only three games across the season. What can you put that down to? Probably hard work on the training set track. Since November, they've just gone out, got themselves fit and it's put us in very good stead for the season. So you had a really good win over the Kangaroos two weeks ago and came into this game pretty unscathed. Well, big Percy rolled his ankle, so I made him earn his spot today. If he wanted to play, he'd have to prove himself. If he couldn't take the pain, then he had to forget the final. Ooh, how did Purse prove that to you? Well, we made him run four 400 metre laps, each one under 75 seconds, with 75 seconds rest between each one. Huge. But he did it. Uh, so let's get to, the, to today's big game. Uh, the weather was very different to the majority of the season. The whole year was dry, but we were a very skillful side. When it rained, you had to play it, so today was never going to pose too much of an issue for us. Now, and how were you guys in the rooms today before it? Was it? Did it just feel like another grand final? I found it hard today. I guess the occasion just got to me. I thought I could handle it. It was probably a combination of things, but the added responsibility of being playing coach was a big part of that. Now you gambled with your team balance today and you had a little choice but to go into the game with two Ruckman to counter Collingwood's Peter Moore, probably the form Ruckman of 1979, considering he just won the Brownlow medal. We had two Ruckman who could mark and kick a goal. Mike Fitzpatrick was capable of playing as centre-half forward, while Percy Jones would always take a mark and kick a goal, and he had a huge heart. That's why we were so desperate for him to prove his fitness. And yeah, you, had, you gave uh, Robert Klomp a bit of a role there as well. He had the role on Renee Kink. I told him you need to stick with him and cut him out of the game. And that's all we want from you today. And if you had any opportunities to rebound and set up attack, but the priority was to cut Kink out. Was there any thought about targeting Stan Magro after what he did to you in round 10? No, not at all. Any revenge myself or other players we were looking to get today, we wanted to be on the scoreboard. Now, as captain coach on such a big day, how heavily did you rely on your match committee to assist you during this game? Player moves were made by the match committee, Wes Lofts and Sergio Silvani. Before they made a move, they had to tell me. They'd send a runner out and he'd let me know. Okay, now, oh, so the game started in fairly sloppy conditions with neither side finding an easy avenue to goals. Early in the first quarter, Collingwood's Renee Kink and you went toe-to-toe and Kink was penalised for a rather crude tackle. Hope he gets a week or two for that. He's bad at me too. Uh, mate, you personally had a bit of a quiet start. Um, where did you start yourself? In the centre, but I didn't get a touch. Um, early on, Collingwood targeted one of your young stars in Wayne Harms as a possible danger man and instructed his opponents to keep him out of the play. Well, I think they wanted Harms in the goal square, but Ronnie Wearmouth kept dragging him upfield onto the wing. Um, so, mate, while Collingwood seemed to have a bit of the majority of the play there, you guys had not that many major kick-getters except Wayne Johnson. He's proven himself to be a wonderful player in big games. Now, Weemouth scored the first goal 16 minutes into the first term and then another to Olsen, and the Pies led at quarter time by 10 points. You guys hadn't even scored a goal yet. Yep, it was a hard, brutal first quarter. There was plenty of tension between the teams. We're both tackling fiercely and are quick to back our mates up when needed. 
we had our chances. Collingwood took theirs. And midway through that second quarter, the gap seemed to be widening even more and Collingwood was sneaking further ahead. Mate, it sh- should have probably been more than it was, though. True. I sensed that my team needed more run in the middle, so I shifted myself to the back pocket and we moved young arms into the middle. That's a pretty familiar role for Wayne Harms, isn't it? It is. We would have moved him up the field a few times over the year. We even played him centre-half forward a few times. And he's always kicked us two or three goals. He's got more skills than most people think. And he can mark with the best. So the move today was always likely. Then uh, Russell Olsen, who'd been one of the Pies' best, was knocked out by Keo. That was nothing. Keo was evening up Olsen and hit him early. He could easily have gone on to win the best on ground if it wasn't that big hit, which I heard from 30 metres away. It was a big moment in the game. Now, when Ross Brewer waited at the back of the pack and watched the ball fall into his arms, he put Collingwood 27 points off. If you were a betting man, you would reckon that at the 19-minute mark of the second quarter, Carlton without a goal, there's no way you could hit the front at half-time. You know what I? Knocked me down five goals in my last 10 minutes, and we were ahead. We really aren't, weren't doing anything for a quarter and a half. If we went in half-time, I'm bored ahead. And those young boys, as we mentioned, you know, Harmsy, Jim Buckley, Peter Francis, they were all getting plenty of the ball, which must have been pleasing. We went in with a group of younger players, plus some experienced blokes who played in 70 and 72, like Jeff Shout, Southby, Bruce Dill, Percy Jones, David Mackay and myself. It was a perfect mix. So like you said, a point up at half-time, what was the message to the team during the break? Yeah, it's more of the same. Keep hitting the packs do what we've been doing all year long. And you started Fitzpatrick on the bench there. Was there any reason for that shift? Like I said earlier, we were taking on the Brownlow medalist in the ruck, so we wanted to tire him out. This meant we needed fresh legs. The Blues got the first goal of the second half through McClure, but the Pies were quick to counter. They were, but the pleasing thing was we hit right back again. I think it was Big Percy who kicked the reply. Now, speaking of Percy, one of the highlights of the third quarter was that huge mark he took, which just had the whole crowd absolutely delighted. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> but he ruined the moment by kicking the ball out on the full. Klomp was playing his role to perfection, just like you asked him. He didn't have many kicks, but I reckon he took King completely out of the game. And late goals to Francis, uh, Sheldon, and that really sneaky late one from Michael Young. So you guys take a team-high lead of 21 into the final break. We had a good third quarter. We absorbed everything they could throw at us and then countered with our own attack. Now, were you worried about what Hafey might do to unsettle the team heading into the last quarter? Uh, my word, yeah. Hafey's a master coach. We knew he'd move the magnets. We just had to counter and I hope we could play one more quarter of good footy. Now, early in the last quarter, you were still playing a defence and you punched the ball out of bounds heavily, but you fell, on, you fell pretty heavily on your ankle. I knew I had to go straight off. I've done plenty of ankles like that over the years. If it had been half-time, I'd have had a couple of needles, but in this case, I was out there. I couldn't do anything. I was useless. Ten minutes to go, I knew I had to go straight in. Um, but you're the coach. Was the idea the coach from the boundary? My, my mind was gone. I wasn't there. I went down into the rooms and the trainers kept coming in with updates, saying we're still in front. Players were all drilled enough to carry on without me. 
So while you were getting those painkillers, you miss seeing Harmsey and Sheldon team up for a clever but pretty controversial goal. Down towards the half-forward line, Harms tries to pick it up. Buckley gets it out to Harms now. He's pursued by Brewer, but he can't catch him. Harms fires at the goals, but he's off target. It's rolling towards the boundary line, and Harms almost makes ground. He tips it back to Sheldon. It's a goal! No, no doubt that will become part of football folklore, but I didn't get to see the bloody thing happen live. Have you spoken to Harms about it yet? Well, he told me that the first kick was shit. I think he chased it down because he knew that. And he wanted to make up for it. And he reckons he saw Kenny Sheldon alone in the goal square. So as soon as he arrived at the ball, he knew he was going to whack it left. I mean, honestly, he won't shut up about the play. So it feels like I was out there. Does he think it was in? said it was in, but I'm sure each time he tells the story, the ball's going to be halfway to the city. Well, whether it was in or not, uh, it gave you about a 10-point lead, but there were still 10 minutes left in the match. That's heaps of time. Was it? Seemed like a flash to me. So, after that, and eight minutes more of no score, we had the Pies' Alan Edwards kicking a goal, bringing the Pies within five points, with, yeah, as we said, about only two minutes to go. Yep, someone said the Pies had kicked another one. Now, not being out there, getting updates must have been ex- almost as excruciating as the injury. Well, I was still in the rooms when someone came down and said we won. I think I said, you beauty, or something to that effect, but I was so bloody pleased. Was there, is there any regret at missing that last ten minutes of the game? Nah, I didn't care how we won it. I'm probably the only premiership coach not to have seen the last 10 minutes of a grand final. And then you had to come out and collect the cup. Yeah, I had to be half carried. My, my left ankle had a nice little towel wrapped around it. But the pain had all but been forgotten and I was going to go and collect that cup and nothing would stop me. And Harmsey collected the first Norm Smith medal as best on ground. What do you reckon? Was he a deserving winner? Good day, but I thought Wayne Johnson was pretty bloody good too. This was Clomp and Peter Francis. Will you go on? Uh, will you go on again next year, Jezza? You're getting older. Oh, um, age should be no barrier. It means having to work harder, watching myself, and giving away a few of the easy things in life. But they're just challenges. I'll train through the summer, keep myself fit, and play in the practice games next year. If I find I'm not holding my place or I'm keeping a young player out, then I'll retire. Well, mate, with a team full of young stars, I'm sure you and the Blues will be looking at much more success over the next few years to come. I hope so too. I feel so proud for all Carlton supporters, and mainly for those players who worked so hard to win this flag. Thanks, mate. Cheers. All right, so some stats from that game... Goals for Carlton Sheldon with three, Buckley McClure two, singles to Francis Harms, Jones and Young. For the Pies, Davis with four, singles to Brewer, Carlson, Edwards, Ireland, Kirk, Kink, Olsen and Wearmouth. Best for Carlton were Wayne Johnson, Francis, Klomp, Harms. Um, and very fitting that Norm Smith's wife, a widow, would hand out the Norm Smith medal to her... Nephew. Nephew, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that a, an yeah, amazing... Worked out lovely. Yeah. Um, so, a few points of interest from that match. Uh, it was out! No. <laughs> depends who you talk to. It's, it's funny, those, all those stories. <laughs> it is. It is what it is. Imagine yeah. if that happened now. The, 
Oh. I mean, it happened on the weekend with Tom Lynch's goal. Yeah, with the goal. Yeah, exactly. Same sort of thing. Um, Alex Jeselenko, the last captain coach to win a flag. Of course. Yeah. The Blues' grand final score of 82 points was their lowest scorer all season. It's not surprising, though, is it? The, oh. the type of footy that we see in the finals is like that. So, yeah, that's, that is interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, and the thing you never realise, like you see that Harm steps it back to Sheldon, that's a goal. Yeah. Like that happened and there's still 10 minutes to play. There's heaps it, of time, which no one realises. They always play that. And I didn't realise until no. we talked about it that it felt like that was in the last couple of minutes of the game. Like that, and that's what put them over the edge to win. Yeah. Like that's sort of what it's been built up to in, yeah. as in, in the, in the, in the folklore. Legend. Yeah, yeah. But no. But this game would prove to be Alex Jeselinko's last as captain coach of Carlton, his mm-hmm. very last game for the club. Not a bad way to go out. No, but the uh, the way he goes out, which we'll learn about next episode, is very controversial. Yeah. Um, so some other winners from the year. In the reserves, we've got North Melbourne defeating Collingwood 92-67. to In the under-19s, Carlton defeating Fitzroy, and therefore the McClellan Trophy goes to Carlton. Mm-hmm. So let's wrap this up, Charlie. Let's do it. The Premiers were... Of course, Carlton. Um, the Brownlow medal winner? The Brownlow medal went to Peter Moore of Collingwood. A ruckman. Love it. It, it did. And the Coleman? The Coleman went to... Kelvin Templeton. Oh, yes, of course. 91 goals for yes. the Doggies. Wooden, Huge. Wooden Spoon? Wooden Spoon was St Kilda. Their 20th Wooden Spoon. Mmm. Um, we've got the... Oh, we can add the Norm Smith medal to that now as well. Oh, yes. Brilliant. The Norm Smith medal went to Wayne Harms of Carlton. Um, most points was kicked by Calvin Templeton as well with 62. Uh, mark of the year was Michael Roach of Richmond. Goal of the year, Lee Matthews of Hawthorne. My retrospective rookie of the year mm-hmm. has gone to Alex Marco of Carlton. Just edging out Neil Danaher and Jared Healy. Yeah, good names there. Um, and if I'm, if I'm mispronouncing his name, please let us know. I feel like it might be Marku. Marku. Oh, you? I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The premiership list as of 1979. Collingwood with 13. Carlton with 12. Essendon with 12. Melbourne, 12. So we're dropping down that list. Richmond, 9. Fitzroy, 8. Geelong, 6. Hawthorne, 4. South Melbourne, 3. North Melbourne, 2. Footscray, 1. St Kilda, 1. Um, best name? Best name. Okay, the top three, Robert Polkinghorne, Glenn Middlemiss, and uh, Robert Klomp. I think I've got to go with Glenn Middlemiss. Middlemiss. Yeah. Middlemiss can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right, and some retirees for the final time. We've got Percy Jones of Carlton, 249 games, 284 goals and four flags. Not bad. Phil Manasseh, that famous run for Collingwood, yes. 122 games, 60 goals. Kevin Sheedy. 251 games for the Tigers, 91 goals, three flags. Uh, Neil Baum, Richmond, 159 games, 229 goals, two flags. Brian Cousins, only 67 games. Uh, Phil Baker of North and Geelong, 106 games, one flag. Graham Melrose and Frank Gumbleton of North Melbourne. Um, we've got Stan Elves, former Melbourne captain and North Melbourne Premiership player with 266 games. And another Melbourne player, Ray Biffin, 170 games, 131 goals. Rounding out the 70s. Yes, we've done it. We're into the 80s. That's the decade we were born. It, seems, it feels crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's only taken us, what, five years? To get here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but we're uh, here. Almost. We are, we are. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's, there's almost too much to talk about now. Yeah. It's going to be busy. Well, uh, looking forward to getting into the 80s. With a, I mean, it's another big decade for football. Huge oh, decade for footy. Yeah. It's a lot game, to talk it's a, about. It's a game changer, actually. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's been sort of a steady steady incline, and now it's going like Ooh, this. Oh, yeah. You can't see that through, yeah, but I'm going up. Yeah. It's going to be and big. There's going to be a lot we're going to miss talking about oh, as well. I absolutely, we can't. There's so much. We can't possibly. You know, we're not... We're we'll try. Yeah, we're yeah, doing nothing. Uh, so, well, until 1980, guys, um, looking forward to uh, to seeing you there and uh, hopefully we have another good weekend of finals footy in real life. But, uh, go uh, D's. Until ne- yeah, go D's. Until <laughs> next time, uh, hooroo. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.